run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hey, good evening to you, or if you're listening to us on a podcast, which I know a lot of you do, then good morning, good afternoon, whatever it might be. Hope you're enjoying mowing the lawn, working out on the treadmill, driving in the car, wherever you may be that you are listening to Beyond the Bricks. We are oh so grateful. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson joins me on this program where we take a look exactly that beyond the bricks of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. A glimpse beyond simply the statistics or the drivers that make the Indianapolis 500 the greatest race in the world, but rather those just to further dive into the history, the characters, the legends, the myths at times. And tonight, Mike, here's what I was thinking. Now, this is what's always fun for me with this program. You have this magical ability to pull up audio on cue, and I'm going to put you on the spot right now because you and I didn't even talk today about what we're going to do. So I had an epiphany on my drive down to the MS World headquarters and thought to myself, I'm going to challenge Mike to pull audio out of his computer and other areas probably that you have accumulated, and we're going to do it on demand because I didn't even tell you what we're going to talk about tonight. So now I'm going to reveal to you the topic du jour. Mike Thompson, are you ready? I'm ready, but I'm kind of worried that I'm having to pull audio out of something here, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about where we're going with this. That's right. Filing cabinets, whatever it might be. Uh, here is the deal. It was announced within the month that this year the pace car driver for the Indianapolis 500-mile race would be Sarah Fisher, who is, of course, and a lot of people I think got thrown off, Mike. I did as well when they said she's the fastest female qualifier in Indy 500 history, and I thought, no, wait a minute, that's got to belong to Danica Patrick. No, in fact, Sarah Fisher, in terms of four-lap average, has the highest qualifying average speed for a woman in Indianapolis 500 history. That's correct. So and Sarah Fisher, Sarah Fisher was a heck of a race car driver. Um, you know, I, I recall especially one of my favorite races was a race I watched with my daughter, who was very young at the time. Uh, Sarah Fisher had a chance to win at Michigan, and I'm sure you were you were calling that race, Jake. And and Sarah Fisher put on a show that day, and my my daughter was very young at the time, but she was she was cheering on Sarah, hoping that she had, was going to win that race. And uh, Sarah Fisher was a heck of a race car driver. Sarah Fisher was the third woman to actually make a start in the Indianapolis 500 mile race behind Lynn St. James and Janet Guthrie. Desiree Wilson was one who passed the driver's test in 1982 but failed to qualify for the 500. But after Sarah Fisher, of course, Danica Patrick, Milka Duno, Anna Beatrice, Simona Di Silvestro, Pippa Mann, and Catherine Legg. So there have been women who have raced now at the Indianapolis 500, and I rather... Uh, I've always been proud of the fact or enjoyed the fact that it got to the point where it really wasn't even necessarily the anomaly anymore. As a matter of fact, you obviously have had years where there were multiple women running in the race. But, Mike, here's what I decided we were going to do tonight, and that is to go back and kind of take a look at the original trailblazers of females at the Indianapolis 500, from car ownership 
to breaking the barrier in terms of qualifying. And I knew that you would be able to reach in to your audio archives and pull out plenty of sound for us about, obviously, Janet Guthrie, as well as Bessie Lee Paoli, who was one that, Mike, if you could touch on this a little bit, I think a lot of people don't know her story. She's from Springfield, Illinois, and was involved in the automobile industry but also was one of those who was around at a time when probably a lot of people didn't realize that she was around to the level that she was. Yeah, Bessie Lee Paoli was a pioneer. I mean, absolutely a pioneer. I mean, you have to go back to Maude Diego, who was the really the first pioneer, who was the uh, the car owner of uh, Ray Keach's car in the 20s. But Bessie Lee Paoli was a true pioneer. I mean, she owned a car, uh, the Springfield Welding Special, for about a three-year period, and and she had Art Cross as a driver, and uh, she had Troy Rutman, and you know several other drivers uh, at a time where she couldn't even be in the pits with her car. Um, that was you know not allowed at that time. But uh, she was a, you know a true true pioneer car owner, and uh, unfortunately a name that people don't really know. People don't. Uh, it just doesn't resonate when people say you, you know you bring up Bessie Paoli, and she's a you know she's a true she was a true trailblazer, a true pioneer. And you know one of the things I love about the show that we do is that we get to you know we get to shed some light and, and uh, you know. And, and introduce people maybe who don't know who Bessie Lee Paoli was, you know, and give the, them an opportunity to learn more about her and, and, and you know, shine some light on, on some people like her. So at the risk of sounding um, presumptive, maybe, I don't know, uh, shed some light on this, if you could, before we hear from Bessie Lee herself. When we say she was an owner, was she a co-owner or was she the outright owner? I know, obviously, she was the co-founder and part owner of Springfield Welding and Auto Body. And then I believe once, um, you know, she became a widow, if I'm not mistaken. But she was, um, you know, the buck stopped with her for certain. But in terms of car ownership, was she uh, a co-owner or was she the sole owner? No, she was the car owner. Uh, she was the she owned the team. She put the car on the track that finished second in the 500 in in 1953 with Art Cross. Uh, and again, she wasn't even allowed even in the pits to celebrate. So no, no, she was she was the owner of the of the team. Of course, Art Cross finished second to Bill Vukovic, which was uh, that in itself. I mean, there were Bill Vukovic was as dominant a driver as there was in the era. So that machine, the Springfield Welding. Uh, Clay Smith Special finishing second in the 1953 Indianapolis 500-mile race. And Bessie Lee Paoli was one who had been interviewed. Here is a conversation that she actually had. This is what year, Mike, probably around that time, 53 or 54? This is a very, very rare clip. Now, this comes from a, uh, a show called Speedway Gossip that ran in a couple different iterations, and we've run a couple clips from this show before, but uh, this was a really early version of this show that actually, believe it or not, uh, 1941 Indianapolis 500 co-winner Floyd Davis actually co-hosted at the time. Um, Sid was on it at times as well as uh, Charlie Brockman, but they actually had Floyd Davis as the interviewer for a number of things. And this is a very, very rare interview that Bessie Lee Paoli actually agreed to uh, be interviewed for this clip. So here we go. Here's the listen. Floyd, in the last three years that we've been on the air, and you've had uh, a lot of people up here to interview, I must say that your interviewee this evening is just about the prettiest one of the whole bunch. <laughs> There's no doubt about that, Charlie, and uh, great friends. Uh, this evening, this is a real pleasure to yours truly. I have a different side 
type of an interview up here. She's a very grand person. She's an old friend of mine. And I don't mean she's old. She was, when she was a kid, she admired me in racing, so she tells me, and she's been a friend for several years. She's, she's from my own hometown, Springfield, Illinois. In fact, uh, rather uh, a novelty in racing, so to speak. She is a lady race car owner. And I'm here to tell you that I had a lot, I do a lot of persuading to get Mrs. Paoli up here to talk. She doesn't want any publicity, but after a lot of persuasion, for all friends' sake, she finally consented to come up. Uh, Beth, it's grand having you up here, and uh, how is the old hometown? Well, it's uh, just about like when you left it, Floyd, and it's an honor to be up here with you. Well, thanks a lot, Beth. Now, uh, one this race car you have here, uh, do you, you own that yourself? Yes, Floyd, that's my car. Your husband has, has no interest in it. That is financial interest. No financial interest, although I think he's interested. Beth, you, ever since I've known you, you've been a, been a race fanatic. Now, uh, I imagine this will uh, be realizing one of your life dreams. Well, it certainly will, Floyd, and it is. It's grand. Do you intend to manage this yourself, this race car, or you, do you have one of the boys doing no, that? No, uh, Placement is managing everything for me. Thanks, Well, uh, Beth, I don't know how you could have picked a better man. I, I've known Clay for quite a number of years, and when he puts, uh, picks up a wrench, he does something with it. And uh, I feel sure that you'll have no trouble getting in this race. You know your boy turned some 135 mile laps a short time ago. Yes, I'm quite proud of the fact. And by the way, Chuck Stevenson is quite a boy, too. He's uh, very capable on all types of tracks, including this one. And that affects some of the boys over here. Uh, when they come over here, they can't get around this track. Some of the best dirt track boys, but Chuck doesn't seem to have that trouble. Uh, do you intend to campaign this car on all the championship dirt? Oh, yes, definitely, fine. You know this, I know that the car was number 16 for some unknown reason. I have a deep place in my heart for that number 16. Well, uh... That was the number that was on the car when I won out here. Well, Grand, sorry. Uh, I hope it serves you as well as it did me. <laughs> but I believe that number is either uh, one out here more times than any other number, but that is second place, I can say that. Uh, outside of winning here, I imagine one of your greatest ambitions will to be uh, will be to uh, win the 100-mile championship race in Springfield, Illinois. Well, that would be mighty grand, but uh, we just want to have good luck everywhere and not have any accidents or anything happen that would be injurious to anyone. Now, for more on Bessie Lee Paoli, here is the historian emeritus at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Donald Davidson. Bessie Lee Paoli was um, a female car owner, which was very unusual for the time, and uh, 1952 through 54, so uh, she she wasn't in a great uh, deal. Um, and I wondered 
uh, whether in fact that she was merely the entrant and and uh, it was sort of like a tax deal. But no, she she was married, but she was the car owner, and Chuck Stevenson was the driver in 1952, and they actually won the national championship. And she couldn't get in the pits at That's any of the tracks. She owned the car and <laughs> yeah. she couldn't get in the pits. So then in 1953, they came back with Jimmy Reese. It was the Springfield Welding's Clay Smith special. And Clay Smith was the mechanic, famous uh, famous chief mechanic. And um, uh, Jimmy Reese was the driver. And he... He uh, he made an incomplete uh, qualifying attempt, just couldn't get up to speed. And it was one of those things where the combination just wasn't right. So Art Cross, who'd been struggling in another car, took it over, qualified it, and then he ended up finishing second behind Vukovic. So we, we had a lady car owner finishing second. She still couldn't get in the pits. <laughs> and then in 54, her car got bumped. And then um, later that year, Miss Mary Holman, uh, the daughter of uh, uh, Tony and Mary Holman, uh, had uh, become a car owner of a sprint car. And then she wanted to buy a championship car for her new driver, Elma George, who would end up being her husband. And she purchased the car from... uh, from Bessie Lee Paoli. Oh. And so you might be asking yourself, was that the first example of a female owning a championship car and then selling it to another female? And the answer would be no. <laughs> it already happened in the late 1920s when uh, when uh, Frank Lockhart's widow sold a car to um, uh, M.A. Yeagle, Maud Yeagle, who was actually the winning car owner in 1929. But anyway, Bessie Lee Paoli uh, just uh, was in it for that brief time. And then her son, Jim Paoli, became a top fuel dragster driver and uh, ran at Raceway Park a number of times. When we come back, the path has been blazed for women at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but it didn't mean it was necessarily an easy way to get in for those who took the reins and got behind the wheel. The story of Janet Guthrie when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Jay Query, Mike Thompson, Sam Fritz filling in tonight. Sam Rumsa, our executive producer if you will this is beyond the bricks here on 93.5107.5 the fan on a night when we are celebrating taking a look back at women breaking through into auto racing in the indianapolis 500 mile race we heard from bessie lee paoli before the break there one thing i noticed mike and i I don't mean this in any way shape or form um as a disrespect it is fascinating to me and this is just the weird way in which my brain works But sometimes in listening to the old audio, and in particular those who had a higher-pitched voice, obviously a lot of females in this case, you seemingly think to yourself, or at least I do, and I want to know if you you sift through a lot of this old audio, a lot more than I do, and I realized that it wasn't like they had necessarily the precise high-def level digital recording technology that we have today. But the the higher pitched voices in particular are all to me when you're listening to voices of, of that era begin to sound somewhat similar. And I'm always been curious if maybe some of that, not all, but some of that is just the recording technology and then obviously over the course of time 
you know, the deterioration of the audio level itself on tape. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, uh, although... I mean, they've made great strides in being able to save old recordings and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it 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 can be interesting trying to pick out voices and things like that um, from what when we're working with those things over time. Um, it's it's really interesting, though. I think we've talked a little bit about this on the program before. It's it's really interesting to hear the way the interview styles have changed over time. You know, sure. Um, you know, just I, I just I'm fascinated by the way interviews have been conducted over the years. And, and you know, even the way we talked about uh, we've talked a little bit about the way Sid used to conduct the race more as a master of ceremonies, uh, as opposed to the way, you know, Paul and, and, you know, Mark and the way you guys do it today is, you know, you're doing play by play all 200 laps where Sid was kind of, you know, the MC, you know, and the host. And, and it's just interesting to me the way it's all evolved over a 70, 80 year period of time. That really, to me, is really interesting when I go back and listen to all this stuff. At the time that Bessie Lee Paoli's machine finished second in the Indianapolis 500 in 1953, Janet Guthrie had just celebrated her 15th birthday. She was born in 1938 in Iowa City. She will always be remembered as the woman who broke obviously the gender barrier by being the first woman to qualify for the Indianapolis 500 mile race she originally came to Indianapolis a year before she made her first start but the reality is and I wanted you Mike before we get into some of the audio of Janet Guthrie I think a lot of people think that Janet Guthrie was a woman that just kind of was miraculously found as this face in the second half of the decade of the 70s to make an attempt at Indianapolis and run a race. But in reality, this was a very accomplished driver who had run in different disciplines before coming to Indianapolis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Janet Guthrie was a very good sports car driver. Uh, She had been driving sports cars for a number of years before she ever got her big break in in Indy cars. But she, I mean, if she had never come to Indianapolis, she was, I mean, she was a very good sports car driver before she, you know, was considered to come to Indianapolis. I mean, she had won a, you know, class victory at Sebring and, you know, things like that. So, you know, and she, she had, she was a potential astronaut candidate. Uh, So, I mean, this, I mean, she was a very accomplished person, you know, if you take away and obviously, and a tremendous accomplishment being the first female driver in the Indianapolis 500. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment. But if you take that even away off of her resume, she's got an amazing resume without even her best accomplishment, if you, if that makes sense. Well, Janet Guthrie began racing Jaguars in 1963 in the SCCA circuit and did that off and on. As you had mentioned, Mike, it took a while maybe before things really permanently got going for her. In 1972, she began racing on a full-time basis, running different sports cars. And as you had mentioned, that included success in Sebring. So she certainly was no stranger to success in cars. As a matter of fact, she also competed in a NASCAR event at the Winston Cup Super, uh, Super Speedway race in 1976 in the World 600. So she had a vast racing background before Indianapolis. But here is Janet Guthrie in her own words on her ambitions as far as her racing career. To be honest, my ambition was uh, uh, Le Mans and the Targa Florio, the great international road races, uh, sports car races. I never dreamed I'd get a chance at Indianapolis, but uh, it was the greatest race in the world. And it was the greatest race in the world that allowed her to come in and 
take her chance at qualifying for the race. As we had mentioned, she originally came in 1976. She attempted to enter the Indy 500, I should say, in 76. She failed to qualify, but it was 1977 when she broke through. Uh, But here is more from Janet Guthrie on that opportunity that opened for her in terms of the Indianapolis 500. Well, I I had been competing in sports cars for 13 years, and so I had a reputation. Uh, And um, Rala Volstead, one of the last of the independent, low-budget team owners, had always been an innovator, and it crossed his mind he'd like to be the first team owner to bring a woman to Indianapolis. And since there weren't any women on the ovals, he asked his sports car racing friends and kept getting my name and called me up now mike you grew up in ohio correct that's correct and so you came for the first time to indianapolis to the speedway in 1982 was that the first time i know that was the first time that you attended inside the oval had you been past the indianapolis motor speedway or visited the speedway before the first time you saw cars on track no no that's uh, the first time i ever came to indianapolis ever was was uh may 15th of 1982 i had never been to the track before coming for the first time to time trials and i think many people and i know because i've taken people to the speedway from as far away as australia who saw it for the first time i've taken people there from florida seeing it for the first time and for those that are unfamiliar in the city of indianapolis if you are listening to this and we certainly appreciate your ear in doing so for those that live in Indianapolis, humor me for a second by simply listening along, listening along. But the Indianapolis Motor Speedway lies on the west side of Indianapolis, just about four miles from the center of downtown. It is still within the well-populated area of Indianapolis. And the west side of the track runs along Georgetown Road, of course, and runs essentially a mile down from, you know, 25th well, actually 30th on the far north side, but you have a lot there, and then 25th Street down to 16th Street. And when you're driving on 16th Street, if you're coming from downtown, all of a sudden you see huge grandstands. When you consider the fact, and anybody listening to this knows, of course, that it is two and a half miles in length, but I don't know, Mike, that it is possible to put into words for anybody the sheer magnitude of what you are seeing as the largest sports venue in the world right before your eyes but would you agree mike that it is nearly impossible to adequately and accurately describe to someone how mammoth it is oh i totally agree yeah i was i was stunned i mean i think i've told the story before that my uncle wouldn't let me come until i was 12 years old so i studied all the maps and things like that so i know where everything was and i i couldn't believe how big everything was until i got there i mean the walk from you know turn three to turn one i thought okay well that's not that big of a deal yeah. and then i did it when right. i was 12 years old and i was like well wait a minute yeah what you time's bad it was it was a it, it looks a lot smaller on the map yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah you're right i mean you can't really adequately explain the size and, and and scope of the place so imagine coming to the speedway for the very first time knowing that you are going to not walk from turn one to three not take a lap around it on foot as part of the Indianapolis Mini Marathon, but rather get in a race car. Here's Janet Guthrie on the fact that she got to the Speedway having never before seen it. 
I had never seen the place until the day I uh, came to Indianapolis to interview with Bryant Heating and Cooling. They wanted to make sure I would represent them well enough. And uh, on that day, uh, one of their executives showed me the Speedway. More first impressions from Janet Guthrie about the famed two-and-a-half-mile oval. It was so astonishing. I'd never seen anything that resembled it. Um, I'd I'd, uh, been flying since I was a small kid, and uh, as we started down the the, uh, back straight in the Bryant Executive's Pinto, I thought, Mm -hmm. I've taken off in small airplanes from runways shorter than this straightaway. One of the great traditions now, Mike, for people flying into Indianapolis, Indiana, is to look out the window, typically to your right, as you are coming in for, no matter where you're coming in from, for the landing pattern at Indianapolis International Airport. And it's always fun to see somebody, if you're sitting next to them, I don't know if you've experienced this, Mike, that has never before seen the Speedway from air, and they're looking to their right, and they're you know they're looking down, and they're saying, well, where is it? And then you say, well, it's actually like the entire thing underneath us. And like, oh my goodness because it's that big to see from the air. So your eye can tell you a hint as to how big it is, but then once you actually experience it, it's a whole different ball of wax. Oh, yeah, and I can't imagine how daunting it would be if you've never, you know, to take your first laps there. I can't, I just can't imagine how daunting that would be to look down that front stretch and look into turn one and then, you know, just where it funnels down into to one. I just can't imagine how daunting that would be. Well, you can imagine if you listen to Janet Guthrie that it probably daunting was a good word for it. We will hear more on Janet Guthrie's run to history at Indianapolis as we take a further examination of the history that was made some hard to believe 45 years ago in indianapolis you are listening to beyond the bricks my name is jake quarry mike thompson here as well more on janet guthrie when we come back hi i'm janet guthrie if you're like me you want engine protection up front and you want fuel economy back here that's why you need texaco's Haviland supreme motor oil in over a million miles of state trooper testing it delivered proven engine protection in fuel economy tests that delivered unbeaten mileage. Trooper tested protection up front. Backed by unbeaten mileage. That's Texaco's Haviland Supreme. Janet Guthrie. Pedalin Havilland and doing commercials back in 1977. And we are talking about Janet Guthrie, the trailblazer as... A driver at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Women in particular, of course, if you have not heard, Sarah Fisher, who is the fastest female qualifier in Indy 500 history, will be leading the field this year for the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, driving the pace car. And interesting to hear that, Mike, because you hear that commercial and you think to yourself, wow, the opportunity that must have been there for Janet Guthrie to be able to just rake in all kinds of endorsement money and people that would have wanted to get bored on this trailblazer of a female pioneer in auto racing. And quite frankly, Mike, I think it's understandable that maybe Janet Guthrie might have thought the same thing was just going to automatically happen, but I don't know necessarily that it was oh so easy. 
Yeah, that's one of the things I would have thought, too, is that, uh, you know, as the first, as a pioneer, that she would have just been able to go to any, you know, company she wanted to, you know, McDonald's or whoever, and just say, hey, you know, would you like to get on board the train? And and it definitely sounds like from this comment that I pulled out of the filing cabinet that <laughs> she was she did not have that. Here is Janet Guthrie on the efforts of finding sponsors for her Indianapolis 500 ambitions. No, on the contrary, um, I believe it was then uh, far, far more difficult for a woman to find sponsorship, and I think it is, still is uh, more difficult. My, my sponsor, those first two years at Indianapolis, was uh, Rella Volstead's longtime sponsor, Bryant Heating and Cooling. So when it came down to it, Janet Guthrie, I mean, the reality is, Mike, that sponsorship is what, to a great extent, drives it all, right? I mean, in terms of wanting to be able to put together a quality ride, the money that goes into just the effort in general, you know, if she knew, Janet Guthrie, when she got there, that sponsorship was not coming at the rate she anticipated, then right there she's kind of behind the eight ball. And Bryant Heating and Cooling, which, by the way, for a very long time may still be the longest contiguous or the longest running sponsor in Indianapolis 500 history. But, you know, for them to get on board, kudos, no question about it. But that would be a challenge and disheartening, would it not, to go in thinking that things were going to be different for you. I agree. And, and it's interesting. I think she actually had more luck finding sponsors on the NASCAR side of things than she did on the IndyCar. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I had this conversation with another friend of mine who's a, a racing buff. And I said, you know, you realize that Janet Guthrie ran more NASCAR Cup Series races than she did IndyCar races. And they were incredulous. They didn't believe it. But I mean, she she drove in far more NASCAR races than she did actually drove in IndyCar races, which I found to be very interesting in, in that conversation when we were talking about it. And so I think I think she had more luck finding sponsors on the NASCAR side, which I think is even more interesting. So when it came down to it, qualifying came around. And as we talked about, it wasn't necessarily the first time that Janet Guthrie had been to the Indianapolis 500-mile race, but in terms of getting out there and making the show, her best opportunity came in 1977. And in fact, Janet Guthrie became the first female to qualify for the 500-mile race. She did so by qualifying 29th in the race. Here is her recollection of the qualifying effort. Well, that was that was just a, an amazing day. I, I, qualifying was the greatest moment. The the previous weekend, the 22nd of May, 77. I, I I think any driver of that era would tell you the the moment they first put a car in the field for Indianapolis with a a time fast enough to be perfectly secure. I mean, back then there were 90 cars entered and only the fastest 33 would start. That's a moment you'll never forget. Uh, race day, as Johnny Rutherford rightly said, uh, some races you psych yourself up for. Indianapolis, you have to psych yourself down. By the way, I misspoke. Janet Guthrie qualified 26th. It was 29th where she finished the race. But the question is, and you heard her mention there, Johnny Rutherford, he is one of them, and no surprise for anybody who knows Johnny Rutherford, one of the true gentlemen in racing. I think it's been well documented that Johnny Rutherford was one of those who was very kind to Janet Guthrie and accommodating and certainly supportive of her. But you would certainly understand for Janet Guthrie, there might have been a hesitation, if you will, wondering 
what it was going to be like and what the reaction was going to be. Here is Janet Guthrie on the way she was treated, embraced, or accepted by her competitors. At the beginning, there was a, a great deal of suspicion, uh, but I had driven my first IndyCar race at uh, Trenton, New Jersey, um, at the beginning of May, before I first arrived at the Speedway in May of 76. And um, that had uh, done a, a little bit uh, toward persuading the um, oval track racing drivers that I wasn't going to kill them all. Uh, <laughs> there, there were some who were open-minded at the beginning, willing to take a look at what I did on a racetrack and, and make up their minds based on that. Uh, Johnny Rutherford uh, was open-minded. I uh, uh, took a look at what I was doing. A.J. Foyt uh, was open-minded, took a look at what I was doing. A.J. was one of the first to tell the newspapers that it looked all right to him. By the way, in that interview with Terry Stacy of WIBC with Janet Guthrie, Mike, I had interviewed Janet Guthrie a couple of years ago as well, and she told a really interesting story to me along those lines. She said that it, there was one time where she was out running in practice, and the car was giving her a little bit of fit. It was loose, and she was having some challenge with it. And Johnny Rutherford was behind her on the racetrack, and she knew that her car, you know, she was running kind of an odd line because the car was getting away from her a little bit, and she was afraid that she was maybe holding up Johnny Rutherford in the practice. And afterwards, Johnny Rutherford, she could tell, was kind of seeking her out, and she was a little bit nervous, a little bit hesitant as to what was going to happen. And she said Johnny Rutherford came walking up, and she thought, you know, and keep in mind, I mean, in 1977, he's the defending winner of the race. And he came up to her and said... Well, I could tell by watching the line you were in that that car was a little bit of a handful for you there, and I think it might have been something to do with your tire grip or tire pressure or something along those lines, but something that he had noticed. And he said, and I knew you're a, you know, you're a good race car driver, so you, you would have been able, you know, obviously it would have been something with the car, so you might want to look at yada, yada, yada. And then apparently he had said to her, if there's ever an issue that you're having where you're you know you're having some uncertainty you can always follow my line or, or watch around and feel free and, and i'll be happy to give you any pointers that i can um i thought it spoke when she told me that volumes not only about johnny rutherford but probably about janet guthrie as well in the fact that i think that for those that that knew racing the best at that time they knew she was a talented driver who belonged to be there which i thought was pretty neat mike yeah, I agree. I mean, first of all, Johnny Rutherford, as you said, is one of the total class acts. I mean, just a, an outright, a great champion on the track, but a champion in life and just a great person. But but Janet Guthrie wanted to be, she just wanted to be a race car driver and she wanted to be treated as a race car driver. And she didn't want to be treated special. She wanted to just be a race car driver, but she, you know, she appreciated those people who wanted to give her a chance. And I know, I know people like, uh, you know, you know, the people like, you know, Rolla Volstead who gave her that opportunity and people like Johnny Rutherford and people like A.J. Foyt. I mean, when A.J. Foyt put her in the backup car and she immediately showed what she could do in 1976. Now, A.J. did not allow her to run the backup car, but she she would have qualified if she had the opportunity. She would have made the show. And but that, I think, turned a lot of heads. And that actually got her a ride in NASCAR for the World 600 based on her performance. And I think it 
it really helped validate her that A.J. Foyt's giving her a car in car number one, and she went out there and ran laps that would have easily put her in the race. Uh, I think that showed that, hey, uh, you know, the biggest star basically in, in the sport says this person's okay with me. And I think that helped her a lot for when she came back in 1977. And I like what A.J. Foyt, and I'm paraphrasing, has said where he said, you know, listen, I, I didn't have any problem with her. She was there doing her thing and, and you know, just tr- trying to learn her craft and did a good job. And so I thought she, you know, it was worth, it, listen, it was good PR for AJ. It was good PR for Janet Guthrie. No question about it. But in 1977, she put herself solidly into the field, did Janet Guthrie. Here's the lineup announcement from the 1977 61st running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Car number 27, a rookie. The first woman in a 500-mile race, Janet Guthrie from New York City, the Bryant Heating and Cooling Special. Paul Page on the IMS Radio Network, and that led to, of course, it goes without saying, Mike, a lot of probably discussion and debate among people because for so long we had heard Tony Holman simply say, gentlemen, start your engines. You know, what do they say? The, the most famous words in motorsports and I would imagine, Mike, you and I were just tykes at the time, but I would imagine that there was probably a lot of friendly wagering and guessing and speculation and conjecture as to how exactly they were going to handle those exact words, correct? That's correct. And there was a lot of consternation about how that was going to be handled because, uh, you know, the times were a little bit different on how things were, were done. And so, you know, there was a little bit of manipulation behind the scenes on how this was going to get handled. And, and uh, you know, it's it's kind of an amusing story today. But back then, I mean, th- this was the big story. Like, you know, I think if you go back to the Indianapolis Star and the news and things like that, there were stories like, what's Tony's command going to be? I mean, that was the story. I mean, if it would have been if there would have been Twitter in 1977, imagine what that would have been like back then. Um so now, you know, you're going to say, okay, you know, Mr. Holman's going to give the command. What's he actually going to say? Is he going to say, lady and gentlemen, start their, your engines? Or is he going to say something else? And, you know, Janet Guthrie tells a great story about what they actually ended up coming up with. Well, here's how it sounded in what turned out to be Tony Holman's final time asking for the engines to be fired. This is how it sounded in 1977. Over the years, that would change a bit, Mike, to lady and gentlemen, start your engines. I don't know if they ever have said, I believe maybe drivers start your engines. But again, over the course of time, it's become a little bit more obviously of, you know, just kind of a normalcy and not as speculated as to what would be said. Yeah, that's correct. That's what they say now. It's drivers start your engines, I believe, uh, as opposed to specific, you know, gentlemen or lady and things like that. I think now it's it's strictly drivers start your engines. Here is Janet Guthrie's reaction to the command in 1977. Well, that was the last year that Tony Holman called the start, and he had threatened to go ahead and say, gentlemen, start your engines, because he said the mechanics started the engines. They had no onboard starters. 
And uh, Kay Bignati came to me and said, we can't let Tony get away with this. Kay was um, the daughter of three-time winner Louis Meyer and married to the famous master mechanic George Bignati. She said, I have 50-pound bags of feed for the horses all the time. I'll start your engine. So um, Tony had to think of something, and what he came up with was in company with the first lady ever to qualify at Indianapolis, gentlemen, start your engines. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, then Tony passed away that fall, yeah. and uh, uh, subsequently, uh, when I was in the field, uh, Mary Holman, his widow, simply said, lady and gentleman. But to answer your initial question, uh, y you don't hear it. You simply don't hear it. Uh, the mechanics hear it, uh, and what you're listening for is the sound of your engine starting to spin uh, so that you can uh, uh, give it a little throttle and get the engine running. Janet Guthrie is with us. Was it different in 1978 when you came back as an owner? I, well, it was a lot more complicated, to be sure. <laughs> um, and um, I, I had a, a, a good car, and um, we had a few difficulties during the course of the race, but I ended up with a, a top 10 finish uh, that was the best by a woman until 2005. So my guys and I were all quite happy about that. Again, Janet Guthrie with Terry Stacy here on WIBC Radio. Janet Guthrie would, uh, as was discussed, come back to run Indianapolis again in 1978 and 1979. She finished ninth, as a matter of fact, in 1978. And in 1979, in that kind of crazy year, finished 34th. But ultimately, she would still run in the Winston Cup Series in 1980. She ran, as a matter of fact, in Daytona. But here is Janet Guthrie on the end of her racing career. 78, um, the 500 was the only IndyCar race I drove. Uh, I had, I think, uh, two IndyCar races in 1979. Uh, 79 was really the only year I had a car that um, I, I really thought would be in the hunt all day. Um, and um, I, unfortunately, instead, I have had four burned uh, pistons at the end of the first lap for reasons that have never been been clear. So my race ended early. It was quite hard breaking mike pretty good stuff tonight and taking a look back on a pretty historic event yeah i'm glad we got an opportunity to do this let's con consider a couple quick things about janet guthrie when she talks about that top 10 finish she did that in 1978 with a broken wrist which she didn't tell anybody about until after the race she got a little bit of a reprimand for that but she actually broke her wrist in a celebrity tennis tournament and then found out that it was broken didn't want to tell anybody because she knew that they'd probably take her out of the car for the race and then drove the entire Indianapolis 500 with a broken wrist and finished in the top 10. So let's consider that. And then let's also consider the fact that she drove um, and finished at, at Bristol um, at, in a NASCAR race. She finished sixth in a NASCAR race in 1977. And the top three finishers that day were Cale Yarborough, Daryl Waltrip, and Benny Parsons. And sixth place that day at Bristol was Janet Guthrie. So Janet Guthrie is a heck of a race car driver. And again, set forward a path that would later be followed by Lynn St. James, Sarah Fisher, Danica Patrick, Milka Duno, Anna Beatrice, Simona Di Silvestro, Pippa Mann, Catherine Legg. This year, Sarah Fisher will drive the pace car, and who knows? 
we shall see more women that would be welcomed at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike, a lot of fun. Thanks tonight. Thanks, Sam, as well. Thanks to you for listening. This has been Beyond the Bricks.